food today. We're reading two passages this morning, and it'll be clear to you why as the sermon progresses. And they're, they're a bit long, and uh, uh, it's our tradition to stand as a symbol physically of our uh, respect for the Word of God. This is not the Word of men. We're going to read first uh, from uh, Galatians chapter 3, and then from Luke 15. Galatians 3, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, let your Spirit uh, make these words come alive to us. And may the gospel itself impart life. Draw us wherever we might be in relationship to you, to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Verse 19 of chapter 3, uh, Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Spirit imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in the Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And then from Luke chapter 2, beginning in uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll continue with verse 11. Luke uh, chapter 12. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. In verse 11. And then he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive me the share of the property that... Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger, and I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest, older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may take your seats. The parable of the two sons, or the prodigal son as we often call it, is one of the best known stories that Jesus tells. People of all walks of life identify with it. It just rings true with our experience and what we know about family life. It's one of three parables that Jesus tells and they're all about something that's lost. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Now the occasion uh, on which Jesus tells these three parables is his popularity with the irreligious, the immoral, with uh, the scandalous, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and other common sinners, all of whom uh, did not live according to the moral, the ceremonial, or the oral law, the traditions of the elders. And this, Luke tells us, was told because of the grumbling of the Pharisees, because of Jesus' association with these people, and presumably his, well, in some sense, approval of their lifestyles. A man has two sons. The younger one is irresponsible, feels oppressed by his family's religion, and is sure that he can find life elsewhere on his own terms. And so he does what's unthinkable in demanding his inheritance. What he says is shocking. What he's really saying, and what his father understood him to say is, Dad, I can't wait till you die to get what's mine. 
which his father in his day and in that culture would have understood him to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. His father grants his request. The son leaves Judah, lives an immoral, sensual life, is eventually reduced uh, to begging during a famine. He takes a job feeding pigs, which uh, is unclean according uh, to his own religion, his family's religion, and he hits bottom. He's starving. He wants to eat what he's feeding to the pigs, and he comes to himself. He says, I'll go home, and I'll be a hired uh, servant uh, for my dad. He prepares his speech, but the father had not disowned him. He longed for him. He runs to his son and embraces him when he sees him. The son starts into his speech, but the father interrupts. And he says, bring the tokens of his belonging to our family, of being a son. The gift of the best robe, the ring, the sandals. They say to him, you are my son. A party's held and there's great joy. The lost son has been found. And the second son, the good one, the respectable one, the responsible one who's out working in the family farms, hears something, inquires about the sound. And when he's told what's going on, he is angry and he refuses to go into the party. His dad comes to him and he complains bitterly. I have slaved for you. I have never disobeyed you. And I have never been rewarded. And the parable closes with these words from the Father. Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Jesus tells these three parables to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees are actually the people that Jesus holds the most in common with that he encounters uh, in uh, the Gospels and actually they're the people that we have the most in common with. This is what I mean. They are the defenders of orthodoxy. They are the keepers of family values. They are very concerned for the practical piety of people. Uh, they're respectful. Uh, they are faithfully serving God and they're resisting the dominant culture and its degrading influences uh, on uh, their religion. In other words, they're the kind of people you hope uh, your daughters marry and you want for next door neighbors. And as they hear this story, they do what everyone does with a story as you listen to it you begin to identify with the characters. Well, there's only one character they identify with, and that's the older son. Jesus has told this so that they would see that. What he wants them to see, but Luke doesn't tell us whether they actually see it, is that Jesus, in being with the immoral, the impure, the scandalous, was seeking those who were far from God and that they were out of a line with God's mission, God's purposes, indeed the very heart of God. 
Now, it is actually these people who some have become Christians eventually that come to Galatia. If you look at Acts 15.1, which we won't, you'll see it's these people, Christians who were formerly Pharisees, uh, who've stirred up the church. And they are insisting that the Galatians keep the Jewish lifestyle, that they become Jewish and take upon themselves not only the mark of being Jewish, circumcision, but to embrace all of the law, including the moral law, in the same manner that they do, the same spirit that they do. And Paul writes this letter addressing both the obvious thing, the addition of circumcision and ceremonial law to the gospel, which is an utter denial of the gospel. That's why he uses such strong language about it as no gospel at all, to the subtleties of the spirit of legalism. It's not just simply the error of adding circumcision and then undermining what historically has been called the doctrine of justification, but it's the whole approach to the law that Paul is seeking to undermine. And so Paul does this by arguing uh, from Scripture about promise and law. In God's plan of redemption, the law takes us to jail and is a minder. It corrects us when we step out of life. Now, we've already seen over the last two weeks that the law does not impart life. It doesn't give us power to do the good it requires of us. It doesn't change people. It doesn't make people good. And it cannot produce righteousness. The problem is not the law. The law is good and holy and righteous. It's with us that we simply are incapable of living out the fullness of the law. Either it's positive requirements that we love God and our neighbor as ourselves, or in its depth, which goes to the very stirrings and motions of our own uh, hearts. The law and the promises are two separate and complementary arrangements that operate on different principles. The promise is of faith, and the law is of works. God uh, says through promise that I will, I will, I will. And the law is about what we must do. And God says in it, you shall, you shall, and you shall. Salvation and life change and becoming Christ-like does not rest on a law that we will inevitably break. It rests upon a promise that God himself cannot break. And in our text this morning, Paul explains what the point of the law is. Uh, he doesn't tell us about salvation. The law doesn't tell us about salvation, but about sin. And it puts it this way. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the, com by, until the coming of faith would be revealed. So God speaks in scripture and has purposed to imprison all the world under sin. Now uh, we like to think of the law of God and Scripture as a lamp that provides light. 
as a source of encouragement and hope, uh, a reservoir of profitable teaching and training in a godly life. And of course, it is all of those things. And we don't normally think of it as a prison. But the law is just that, because it shows us that we are morally helpless. Paul develops this in Romans 7. Paul says that the law exposed his deepest motivations. It exposed his coveting and wanting what he didn't have. And so it exposed him not just as a sinner, it did that, but as a prisoner of sin. In verse 15 he writes, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then in verse 18, For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul says that he is helpless to free himself or cure himself. And this rings true with our experience, doesn't it? Uh, we discover something uh, that we do that's, that, well, it's bad. Uh, something we actually hate about ourselves. And we try to change it. And in our trying, uh, well, we just don't get where we would like to be. And often we think, well, if I could just find uh, the right set of things to do, if I could just get some help, maybe from a blog or a book, well, then I'll get free. But the problem uh, with that is that it doesn't go deep enough. The advice is good enough. It, if you're, it's anger, for instance, it might be, well, count to ten. You know, go for a walk. Figure out what triggers you and try to avoid that. But and that's not bad. It just simply doesn't go deep enough. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this once. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. That's why bad people know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. Have you fought the evil impulse in you? So God in, God in his plan to rescue us from our helplessness introduces the law so that we would see the truth of our condition. And Paul uses two metaphors or word pictures to explain how the law works. First, the law is a guard, a prison guard, a jailer, who locks us up. Now, the law is our jailer that keeps us locked up in sin's penitentiary. We are the inmates, and law is our jailkeeper. It's the law with its penalties and restraints and punishments. Now, the law in God's plan uh, put the Jews in protective custody until uh, it would lead them to Christ. The law is like a supermax prison. There is no possible way to escape it. Secondly, in God's plan, the law is a guardian. Now, literally, uh, the word, the Greek word behind is, is uh, pedagogos. And it's borrowed from, uh, in the English, the word pedagogy, uh, which is a fancy word that we use to talk about how we teach children. The King James translated its schoolmaster, and that idea is stuck in people's heads. But a, a pedagogus 
is not a teacher, but was often a slave who managed children. They would walk the child uh, to their classroom, carry the child's uh, school books, but they'd sit in a separate room while, uh, uh, with the other pedagogoses while the tutor uh, taught. And then they'd walk the children home. Now, pedagogoses often were minders, chaperones, babysitters. They were disciplinarians. They might correct bad manners and morals. And they were looking out for the best interest of the child. But their goal was to work themselves out of a job until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, these two illustrations, the jailer and the guardian, show us that the law had a legitimate purpose in keeping God's people safe until Christ uh, came to save us. This is the historical purpose of the law in God's plan of redemption. And it shows us something very, very important. And it actually has implications for us as uh, Christians, even though Christ has come and we've put our faith in him. Because of how our hearts are wired up. Because deep within us is a distrust of God's goodness. And deep uh, within us uh, is the presence of sin that seeks to resist uh, grace. So consider this. Both the prisoner, the prison, excuse me, and the, uh, and the, the pedagogue, Remove freedom. In both, the relationship through the law is not intimate and personal with God. It's based on rewards and punishments, and we're treated as children or even worse. And all non-gospel-based religions have these traits in common. Traditional religion says, do this, and God will be happy with you. Uh, you will have his favor. Uh, he will give you the life you want. Uh, and if not, he will uh, pour out his displeasure upon you. They're all characterized by bondage, by an impersonal relationship with the divine that's motivated by a desire for rewards or a fear of punishment, and anxiety about your standing with God. And perhaps you can already begin to see something of the parallels with the older brother as he sees his life uh, uh, living in his father's household. Uh, the pedagogos, the, the, the guardian shows us the law's purpose is to point beyond itself just as the pedagogue uh, prepared children for adult lives as free persons. The law points us to the life Christ would bring and uh, that Christians now enjoy. A life not of confinement, but of freedom. Not of impersonal, but of a personal and intimate relationship with God. And not of immaturity, but of mature character. And so the Old Testament demands that people love God with all your heart, but, and uh, to, to do that, you have to be a person who actually has the law on your hearts. So if we're listening, uh, 
really listening to what the law says. It emphasizes that we need a righteousness and a power and a love for God that's beyond ourselves, that's beyond the law. It's pointing us to salvation by grace. Now, John Stott's uh, one of my uh, heroes, and he's written a commentary uh, on Galatians, and a little bit of it is worth quoting uh, at length. He writes this, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Well, he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, and condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability and disclose what's really underneath. Sinful, rebelliousness, guilt under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law still must be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church, he writes, is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed to him to himself. It's only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin uh, to shine. And it's only against the dark background of sin and the judgment of the gospel, uh, excuse me, the background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. That's from the message of Galatians. So many Christians, though not all, testify when they first became aware of their need for God that they went through a time of immaturity where they became extremely religious. And they diligently sought to mend uh, their ways and to do religious duties to clean up their lives, in other words. And, uh, uh, and often they would attend a church service and they'd be very tearful. Uh, sometimes if it was the practice of the church to invite people forward, they would come. And they would come again the next week, and they would come the week after that. Uh, there are people who come every week in some churches. Um, and what they are doing in this moment of surrender is not really what they seem to be doing. Uh, because what they were really doing was just resolving to be good and very religious and hoping that this would secure the favor and blessing of God. And at this stage, they're uh, trying to obtain the favor and blessing of God, and they have a lot of emotional ups and downs like children. They feel good when they make a spiritual commitment and despondent, of course, when they fail to keep their promise. Often it's only a moment from between one and the other, and so they felt a great deal of anxiety. They were, as Paul says here, under a guardian. They were on the way of, to discovering the God in the gospel, but they weren't there yet. Well, this raises the question, if we're not under law's supervision, can we live any way we want? Well, the law's our supervisor until we find Christ, like a guardian over a child until he becomes an adult, or like a chaperone over a dating couple until they're married. The child internalizes the parent's values, lives in a similar way because they want to. An adult child is not coerced. It's not that there's no relationship in the, in the Christian to the values laws, but a Christian doesn't come to the law as a system of salvation, as a system of change, a system that gives life or transforms. 
it serves as a guide. It shows us in very concrete terms what it looks like to actually love God and love other people. We have to look in it and, and we see the defects in our love. When we grasp that we are saved by promise, we're filled with gratitude and joy. And when gratitude fills our hearts, when we're relying on the promise of Jesus and what he's done, then we can come to the law with a desire to please God, to actually be like Christ, for he lived all of this out. And this changes the very character of our obedience. You see, last time we saw this, that unless we know there's no condemnation remaining, unless we're absolutely certain there's no wrath anymore uh, from God directed toward us because of Christ having received wrath, then we won't allow it to search us in a deep way. It'll be too painful to let it really search us. And fear and pride itself will uh, keep us uh, from that. Now, fear and pride are very poor motivations for uh, law-keeping. Listen closely. Because they are the deeper roots of sin itself. Fear and pride are the deeper roots of sin. And that's why we see, and uh, sadly we see way too many of these things, that some uh, very religious person, and often someone very prominent in the church, uh, who is uh, very well known for their condemnation of some sin, and it turns out that they themselves are participating in it. They fall in it. Fear and pride were their motivations. Pride, that I don't live like this, and, well, fear, too. Fear says to us, if I keep God's law, I'll miss out. Does it not? Pride really says in its depths, I'll make my own rules. I'm free and I can live any way I want. And something like that, you see, pulls our hearts. Don't use the law to create obedience through fear and coercion. A wrong approach to the law focused on obedience, submission, and duty that's not truly rooted in joy and gratitude will turn out to be the seedbed for growing fear and pride in your heart. See, a wrong approach, and that's part of what Paul's driving at, and it's going to be clear and clear that's what he's getting at as he moves to, to sonship here. He's begun to talk about our status as sons. Because if you get it wrong, what you'll end up doing in a desire to be dutiful, if that's all that really you think about in relation to the law, is you'll be, you'll be orienting your heart in a way that's coerced, that awakens actually fear and pride, and not gratitude and joy. Think about, uh, for a moment, the older son. They represent the Pharisees, and really, we're a lot more like them than we might like to admit. 
they not only added their traditions to the law, that, but they actually made law-keeping a way to be saved. It was their salvation system. And it resulted in a, a mindset, an attitude that we actually see in the older brother. The older brother saw himself as someone who worked like a slave for God in his obedience, but was unrewarded. And when the father comes to him with these gracious words, my son, I'm always with you, he's appealing to him. The intimacy that he should have shared with his father, he did not. In fact, he was as distant from his father as the younger son was. The parable of the two sons shows us how legalism undermines joy, freedom, and intimacy. And Paul will take all these themes up as he goes through Galatians. The freedom and joy and intimacy that God intends us to know through Jesus Christ. Genuine Christians can adopt the spirit of legalism and they can come, become just like Pharisees. It's just natural. It happens. It happens to almost everybody who's serious about following Christ. I know, because I was once the younger son. And I came to Christ with great joy and gratitude. But as the years went on, and as I understood more of and more of what God expected of me, and as I uh, saw my heart, uh, I uh, increasingly discovered that I had become, unknowingly, the older son. And that many of the attitudes that are revealed about him were true of me. God had to expose this to me. I don't know if I would have ever discovered it on my own. And then I began a long process of repentance and discovering the beauty and the richness of the gospel. And it's only that way that I regained the joy that I knew as a young man coming to know Christ out of the darkness of my sin. How can you tell whether that might have happened to you? Well, here's the clues. Joylessness. Resentment. Did you notice the older brother said, your son? It's not my brother. It's your son. Uh, uh, resentment toward those who don't live like you who aren't as pure, holy, careful about their keeping of the moral law or their uh, religious duties. A lack of intimacy with God. Actually, an anxiety about where you stand uh, with God. They feel unrewarded, and it comes out in those moments when God sends difficult things into their lives. And their heart cry, even if it's never verbalized, is, is, I don't deserve this. Why, God, have you done this to me after all I've done for you? And they are indifferent to those who are far from God. Their hearts are cold. The law shows us who we really are. And it points us to Christ Jesus, that we might see who he really is, our Savior who kept the whole law and died for us in our place because of our failure 
to do it. The law shows us what it means to love uh, Jesus and others. And as we rest in what Jesus has done uh, for us, our desire to please him, uh, to express our love in response to his love, uh, our service uh, to others flows out of our gratitude, and we want to be like him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you know us. And Lord, you desire for us to live in joy, uh, in freedom, uh, to live out in gratitude, and to become more and more like Jesus. And we ask you'd work in us. Work deeply in us. Even as we open our hearts uh, to you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray.